0: Dear friends, it's so good to be a child of God. Like Joseph, God prospers his children not always in material ways, but in the graces of his spirit. These are the most prized possessions. You can understand them only if you are spiritual. If you're carnal, you will miss the great opportunities that come to prosper in the hand of the Lord. Before we begin this segment on the life and ministry of Joseph, Let us ask God's presence. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank You for being there when we need You and for sustaining us throughout all the varied circumstances of our lives. Thank You for giving us courage in the dark times and helping us to trust Your faithfulness. We want to thank You for trials and even miscarriage of justice. We need these things to make us truly noble. We pray for godly nobility. We pray for princely characters. Help us to rise above all the conflict that goes on in our human lives and live for you, no matter what our circumstances. Now, as we study the life of Joseph, help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand his love and his great desire for us to live at peace with all men so far as possible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Joseph had moved from prison to palace. Pharaoh gave him a wife of the priest of An. The priest was the top religious leader of the nation. Pharaoh no doubt saw this as a political marriage, but it would certainly benefit the priest. It would be natural, however, that this arrangement should be made. Joseph was a diviner in the eyes of the Egyptians, hence he belonged among the priests who were highly respected and revered. Marrying the daughter of the priest was a statement about his spiritual credibility, and it was a way of enhancing his authority and position among the Egyptians. Perhaps Joseph wouldn't have chosen her, since she was a heathen, but in this we have no record of God's disapproval. Joseph didn't try to undo the Egyptian religion, but he no doubt influenced it greatly in favor of the God of Israel. Joseph moved very quickly to begin the process of preserving food for the vast multitudes of Egypt. He built barns, organized a collection system, and arranged for proper care of the grain. The nation began to prepare in earnest for the coming drought and famine. One would think that Joseph would immediately contact his family and let them in on the good news, but he didn't. Why not? Joseph had learned to wait on God for his timing. Joseph had learned not to demand instant gratification. That was his pattern. He let God direct him. It pays greatly to be in tune with the infinite, the majesty of the universe. If Joseph would have followed his own inclinations or impulses and contacted his father, he would have spoiled God's plan for the wonderful reconciliation with his brothers. There's a big lesson here, too. In our world of instant gratification, we sometimes miss the providences of God because we haven't learned to be patient and wait on Him. Don't miss this. Your life might be a whole lot richer if you allow God to work in His timing. Learn to be patient. Learn to wait. This is a great trial for me, too. I want to solve problems immediately. I want to jump in and do what I think needs to be done— when I should cautiously wait on the Lord to see what He wants. During the eighth year, the famine began to press on Egypt and Canaan. Let us begin reading with Genesis 42, 1 and 2. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither, and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Jacob noted the hesitation of his sons to go to Egypt to buy food. Why the hesitation? Egypt was the last place they wanted to go. The problem was that it brought up memories that had haunted them for more than 20 years. That's where they'd sent Joseph. They didn't like the Egyptians anyway. They were a different culture and a different religion. They also had a reputation for business that wasn't the most savory. They were conniving and sharp. Little did they know that it was a Hebrew now in charge of the business. But those memories of Joseph and the sorrow they had caused their father was still hanging on them like a millstone around their conscience. Going to Egypt was the last thing they wanted to do. But God had determined to do them good, even though they had done evil. Isn't that wonderful, my friends? That's what He plans to do for you, too. Little did Joseph's brothers know that God read their hearts. He saw that they were ready for repentance after 22 years of gnawing guilt. He saw that they were looking and longing to get the guilt off their chests. He saw that they wanted reconciliation. The time had come for God's wonderful purpose to be fulfilled, to transition the family into a civilized nation. Not just any nation, but His nation. His church. Yes, God was going to transform even these wicked, conscience-stricken men into His church. God had been preparing them for the spiritual experience of a lifetime down in Egypt. He allowed their hearts to be tormented by guilt and remorse as they watched their father grieve. As the famine waxed great, the families were getting desperate. The brothers had no suitable argument. So ten of them went to Egypt, leaving Benjamin behind. Just imagine the scene. Joseph has set up a large building near his palace from which he could oversee the process of distribution. He no doubt had helpers dealing with the Egyptians. But Egypt was now vulnerable to attack by neighboring countries since they were the only ones with food. They would be the envy of all the nations around. And Joseph therefore had to be careful about security. No doubt he gave his good friend Potiphar some extra responsibilities as well. But in dealing with foreigners, Joseph left the business with no one but himself. He needed to be sure that there were no spies coming to spy out the land for possible invasion. Imagine what it must have been like. Joseph is sitting down at the end of a large majestic room with his princely Egyptian coat at a beautiful table. His servants were there to attend to his every wish or need. His steward stands by his side to supervise all the relevant matters once Joseph's decisions are made, so that Joseph could concentrate on his work. Now he truly is a prince. His coat, the symbol of his authority, is as proportionately imposing to his brothers as was the coat his father had given him almost a quarter of a century before which they were so anxious to tear from him. Now they must reckon with it again, though for the time being they didn't know that it was Joseph in the coat. That coat is now going to get his brothers into more trouble than they can possibly imagine. Now instead of troubling Joseph, his coat is going to seriously trouble them. When his brothers enter the room, he suddenly sees their familiar faces. He was not expecting them, but he knows them. He can hardly contain himself but has trained himself with great self-control. Questions begin to flood his mind. Are they the same as before when he last saw them on that horrible evening, when they so coldly sold him into slavery in spite of his anguished pleading? Or were they different now? Great emotion stirred his soul as memories flooded his mind. He had to be cautious. So he decided to disguise himself and act like an Egyptian though there was nothing more than he would rather do than reveal himself. He yearned to tell them, but he knew he couldn't, not yet at least. Genesis 42 verse 6 says that they bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. They bow low and respectfully. Joseph is instantly reminded of his dreams many years before. His first dream is fulfilled. His Emotions, no doubt, alternate from anguish to pity as he watches this amazing scene prophesied so many years before. Joseph had been accused by his brothers many times of being a spy, to spy on their behavior and tell their father. Do you remember? So he decided to accuse them of the same thing. Verse 9 says, Ye are spies, he said, to see the nakedness of the land are ye come. Joseph's brothers answer in verses 10 and 11, "'We are all one man's sons. "'We are true men. "'Thy servants are no spies.' "'They try to tell him of their family. "'When they mention their father, "'Joseph's heart is rent. "'He longs to know about his beloved father. "'Is he still alive? "'What has happened to him since he last saw him? "'But he must control himself and maintain his composure.' so he hides his emotions behind his accusation and again accuses them of being spies. They again try to explain their family circumstances, giving more details. Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Joseph's mind is racing about what to do. He wants to help them more than they can know, but he has to find out some things first. There's no vindictiveness, no revenge in Joseph. He just has to test them to see what kind of men they are now. When they mention his younger brother, his heart was cut with a knife. Think of the self-control that Joseph must have had to have in this situation. When they mention that one is not, He realizes that they may think he is dead, or at least some obscure slave somewhere. They certainly don't want to say anything about their brother being in Egypt as a slave. Joseph is so surprised and dumbfounded that he can perhaps only think of one thing to say. Ye are spies. More than 20 years before, he had protested their accusations and pled with them not to sell him as a slave, but they wouldn't listen. Now he makes them feel as though he won't listen to their protestations. Then he hits upon a plan to outwardly test their story, but in reality to test their characters. Verses 15-17 through 17, Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved." Whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together in ward three days. Now they're going to understand how he must have felt when they unjustly threw him into the pit. Perhaps Joseph put them in the same prison at Potiphar's house that he had endured, the king's prison. After all, these were prisoners of state, not ordinary criminals. What irony! They're all going to prison except one. After all, they had all put him in prison in the pit in the wilderness, and then sent him into the prison of slavery. Three days, compared to the three years, perhaps, that Joseph had been in prison were nothing. Joseph had been in prison, but he was free in his heart and mind. His brothers, however, are in prison, but they are not free. They had been in their own prison, the prison of guilt, for nearly a quarter of a century. Now they chastise themselves for their guilt. How ironic that they are thrown in prison in the very country to which they had sold Joseph. In three days he relents and lets them out. Verses 19 and 20. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison." Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. He has done a lot of thinking in those three days while they are in prison and realizes that they must be under a lot of guilt. He sees here the need to help them resolve their sin and guilt and give them a spiritual heritage. Isn't that what Jesus does for us, my friends? Now Joseph hears the most astonishing thing. Right in front of him, in a language he can understand, they reproach themselves, thinking he cannot understand them. His brothers talk openly concerning their treatment of him many years before. Listen to their words in verses 21 and 22. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear... Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. When they refer to him, he can hardly contain his emotions. They see the cause and effect, though they don't understand it yet. This is very encouraging to Joseph, but very emotional. He turns and goes into the other room and weeps. When he gets himself under control, he comes back to commune with them. When he came back, they were having trouble deciding who was going to stay behind. None of them wanted to impose it on any of the others. Another good sign. So Joseph made the decision about who was going to stay in Egypt. He took Simeon and bound him. Why Simeon? Simeon had been perhaps the roughest and the most zealous in tormenting him, but Simeon was revengeful. He had been one of the two brothers who slew all the men of Shechem when the son of their leader raped their sister. Joseph lets them go except Simeon. He has no intention of letting their families starve. He loves them, but he wants them all to feel the pain so that he can see their characters. He demands their younger brother come back next time in order to verify that they are not spies. But he can't avoid a tender admonition. And ye shall not die. They think Joseph is threatening them, and that is how he comes across, but he is far more concerned about the spiritual welfare of his brothers and their families. In Egyptian, he instructs his steward to fill their bags with corn and put their money in their sacks. Can you imagine Joseph that night telling his wife about what has happened? He unburdens his heart about how much he loves them and wants to help them. He gives her the whole story of his childhood. He tells her how they had mistreated him, but how now things have come full circle. I can just imagine him doing that, can't you? Verses 27 and 28. And as one of them opened his sack and gave his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money For behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done to us? They are still reproaching themselves, and when they get home, they all find their money in their sacks. Now they are really afraid. They knew that the Egyptians were conniving and masters of set-up. They suspected that this is a trap. They told their father all that happened. But when they tell him that the condition for returning to Egypt for more food was that Benjamin must go with him, Jacob can hardly stand it. They have to watch him grieve about Joseph all over again. Jacob's anguish knows no bounds. Listen to it in verse 35 and 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, me ye have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Surprisingly, Reuben makes a rash statement in verse 37 Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. Jacob cannot accept that. Reuben is rather passionate and unreasonable. Jacob isn't going to slay his two grandsons. Why should there be more bloodshed? Verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way into which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Jacob was really grieving, and the brothers knew that they were the cause of it. But the famine didn't get any better. It was sore in the land. Jacob asks them to go back to Egypt to buy more food. Judah, the one whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, speaks up. In verse 3 of chapter 43, he says, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. After all, they could all be thrown into prison, and who knows what would happen if the spying charge is reopened. But Jacob is still grieving and blames the brothers for it but Judah now offers a proposal that shows his change of heart. Verses 6-10 through 10. Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, and that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him, of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame for ever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. Jacob relents and agrees to let Benjamin go, because he sees the necessity and the desperation of the situation. But he sends a present to appease the prime minister. As he bids them farewell, you can hear the agony in his heart as he says, "'And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin.'" If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Can you imagine the thoughts going through Jacob's mind? What about God's promises? If he were to lose more children, how would they come to pass? And if God was going to make of his family a great nation, how can he do it if they are dying off? Jacob's faith is tested. It seems that Joseph's brothers were responsible for Jacob's weak faith, in a way, The grief they have caused is so terrible. It was hard for Jacob to see beyond what he thought was reality and trust God. As his brothers came in again before Joseph, this time he is ready for them. But he sees Benjamin and is deeply moved. How he longs to just throw his arms around him and tell him who he is. He turns to his steward and tells them to bring the one in prison. Verses 16-18, through Slay, make ready, for they're going to eat together. Joseph realizes that the time is near for reconciliation. They are going to eat together once more. Eating together, my friends, is the great bonding event of life. That's what families do when they get together for reunions. And that is just what Jesus wants to do when all the universe is reconciled once again. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Are you going to be there? It's almost time, you know. But Joseph's brothers are afraid. They worry that they are not invited just to eat. They think it may be a trap. They are still suffering all that guilt, so they're naturally suspicious. In verse 19, they came near to the steward of Joseph's house. They explain what happened with their money, but the steward's response mystifies them. HE SPOKE RESPECTFULLY ABOUT THEIR FATHER AND THEIR GOD. VERSE 23. AND HE SAID, PEACE BE TO YOU. FEAR NOT. YOUR GOD AND THE GOD OF YOUR FATHER HATH GIVEN YOU TREASURE IN YOUR SACKS. I HAD YOUR MONEY. AND HE BROUGHT SIMEON OUT UNTO THEM. NOTICE WHO THE STEWARD GIVES THE CREDIT FOR RETURNING THEIR MONEY. JOSEPH HAS TRAINED HIM WELL TO ACKNOWLEDGE THE GOD OF HEAVEN. His brothers must have thought that the steward had compassion on them for all the trouble that his master had put them through. Obviously, they didn't even then begin to suspicion that the prime minister was Joseph himself. But their attention was distracted when he brought Simeon to them. This had probably been a whole year or more since the last time they had seen him. Simeon has been in prison. No doubt Joseph made sure that he was reasonably cared for, but still it was prison. They all wanted to know how he had fared. Verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Imagine Joseph's amazement at that gift from his father. These are the things he grew up on, the things he loves, nuts, "'almonds, figs, and other fruits. "'What little bit is left after the famine "'has ravaged the land for a while?' "'Joseph asks about his father. "'But notice that they bowed a third time as they answer. Do "'You remember that the second dream "'included his father and mother? "'Now this time, with his mother's son Benjamin present, "'they symbolically, and on behalf of their father and mother "'as well as themselves, bow again.' fulfilling the second dream. Verses 29-31 to And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. But Joseph can hardly stand it. Verse 30 And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and returned. The Egyptians could not eat with foreigners, and though Joseph would have yearned to eat with his brothers, he continued to play the Egyptian. So Joseph sat by himself, and the other Egyptians sat by themselves, and Joseph's brothers sat by themselves. The brothers noticed that they were all seated in order of their ages, and they were amazed. But then they noticed that Benjamin was given five times the amount of food they were given. Remember that Joseph's purpose is to see if his brothers have changed. Joseph watched it all. Now we turn to chapter 44. Joseph commanded to fill their sacks and put their money in the sack and put in his silver cup into Benjamin's sack. Joseph was going to treat them unfairly, just as they had done to him, not to hurt them, but to see if they are changed. Early in the morning they had not gone far from the city when they heard the sounds of horses coming after them. The steward dismounted and accused them of stealing his master's special divining cup used by the priests for their ritual worship. This was an Egyptian thing that Joseph really didn't care about, but it could appear that these men were trying to access Egyptian secrets by stealing the divining cup. "'Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good?' he charged." Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. They protested and were so certain that they were innocent that they offered that the guilty one would die and they all would be his servants. But the Egyptian protested that only the guilty one would be the servant. The stewards searched, starting with the eldest, ironically, knowing where it was all along. As he moves from one... To the other, he found the money, but that didn't really interest him. As he progressed, one after the other, the men felt more and more satisfied that he wouldn't find the cup. All the better to surprise them. The Egyptians had a reputation for intrigue and sabotage. But then he finally came to the youngest, the sack of Benjamin. And there it was. Verse 13 says, "...the brothers rent their clothes." They had no way to prove that Benjamin was innocent. Not even Benjamin could protest and clear himself. As far as they were concerned, there was no defense. Imagine what was going on in Judah's mind as they trudged back to the city. No doubt he remembered how unfairly he had mistreated Joseph, and now his conscience, along with his brethren, was stricken hard again. He knew Benjamin had not taken the cup, He also knew that they were being falsely accused, but why? They were trapped. They were helpless and had no recourse but to go back to the city. Judah knew he had a heavy responsibility that would test his integrity. He had promised his father that he would not leave Benjamin in Egypt. No doubt he worried anxiously about what to say to the Egyptian. What would become of him, his family, and his brother Benjamin? The future seemed dark and evil. Tragedy was all they could see. Do you think by this time that Judah had the faith to look at the stars? Do you think that the brothers could see through the tragedy to the triumph? I doubt it. They were still inexperienced in faith. They were still living under a huge cloud of guilt, which prevented them from developing strong faith. Yet they had no choice but to go through the test. You see, my friends, this is a great lesson. When we are living under a cloud of guilt, it is impossible to develop a strong faith. We must repent, make things right, and live by God's principles if we want to be spiritually mature. They return to Joseph's house. It was still early in the morning, but Joseph is dressed in his royal coat of authority and judgment. Again they bow before Joseph in fulfillment of his dreams. Joseph accuses them again. Then Judah speaks. He humbly appeals to Joseph and says, Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Verse 16. Do you think Judah could have said that if he was of the same grasping, defensive, proud, revengeful spirit of twenty years before? But there's no self-justification. God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants, he says. There's no attempt to blame shift no attempt to minimize their sin, no attempt to hide it, Judah presented themselves as all guilty, not just Benjamin. This impresses Joseph. It is clear that they would stand by Benjamin. They would not abandon him. What a change! What a different group of men they were! The brothers could have assumed that Benjamin was guilty. They could have left him in Egypt without hope and alone. Here is the petted, indulged child that they could have resented, just like Joseph. But honorably, they do not. Even though he is under a cloud of accusation, he was their brother. His trouble was their trouble. They were a family. From their point of view, this was delicate and needed to be handled very wisely. Even though he appeared to be guilty, they couldn't leave him in Egypt. But they had larger worries. Here is the potential extinction of the whole family and the promised nation. They're not men of strong faith. They have forgotten the promises and lack the faith to realize that God would see them through. Joseph Hart goes out to his brothers, but his plan was to send them all away to see how they would react to leaving Benjamin, the only remaining person in their family, to remind them of Joseph and what they had done to him years before. If they were still angry, they might well take it out on Benjamin. So Joseph presses them. He protests that only Benjamin would be his servant. The man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. Verse 17. Would they leave Benjamin in Egypt and go home? Would they leave him to Egyptian justice? They had sold Joseph into slavery knowing he was innocent. How would they now treat Benjamin? Were these the same men, or were they different now? Note that it was Judah that stepped forward. It was the one who had suggested that profit could be made in selling Joseph. The trader now steps forward to fulfill his promise to his father of surety and protection for Benjamin. His promise was not frivolous or passing, he was serious, and Joseph could see it. Listen to his words, starting in verse 18. Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. Judah recounts the story of what happened before they came the second time. Then he tells Joseph of his father's sorrow over the loss of Joseph by saying, And thy servant, my father, said unto us, Ye know that my wife bare me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if ye take this also from me, and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, It shall come to pass, when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die, and thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant our father with sorrow to the grave. Joseph can hardly stand to hear the story. He is shocked to hear about himself, but his heart is torn as he hears about his father's grief. Then the greatest shock of all comes to his ears. The very one who sold him into slavery volunteers to be a slave in his brother's stead. Verse 32. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father for ever. Now therefore I pray thee, Let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me? lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come upon my father. Even Judah's brothers can hardly believe their ears. Joseph can hardly stand it. These men have really changed. They're not the same evil men he once knew. It is enough. His own heart is broken. Joseph can't restrain himself any longer. He turns to his steward and commands that all Egyptians leave the room quickly— his brothers wonder what's going on. Chapter 45, verse 2 says that Joseph wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it, even Pharaoh's household. Now it is his brother's turn to be shocked. How is it that this Stoic Egyptian is crying like a baby, and now he is speaking in their own Hebrew language? They faintly recognize his voice, and suddenly they realize that they have been dealing all along with their own brother, who is now Lord of all Egypt. I am Joseph, he cries, tears streaming down his cheeks. Doth my father yet live? His brothers were absolutely astonished and trembled that they were at the mercy of their mistreated brother. They immediately became afraid of revenge. Joseph tries to put them at ease. He speaks in their native tongue. Come near to me, I pray you. I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years, in the which there shall neither be earing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance." So now it is not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That's verses 4-8. through Now hurry, he says, go home and bring my father here, and I will care for him the rest of his days. What a reunion! What a surprise! Pharaoh reaffirmed the invitation and gave him wagons and supplies and transportation to make it all possible. But now comes the great symbol of restoration. In verse 22, Joseph gives his brothers changes of raiment. These are not the humble coats of shepherds. These are the royal princely coats of Egypt, like the one that had gotten them in so much trouble on coming to Egypt in the first place. Joseph is, in essence, symbolically asking them to join him in ruling Egypt. He treats them with great respect. Isn't that what Jesus does with us? He changes our raiment of filthy rags and gives us princely robes of his righteousness and offers us the privilege of ruling with him. Joseph gives five coats to Benjamin and three hundred pieces of silver. There's no jealousy, no envy. All is forgiven. All is symbolically put behind them. The door on their sin is closed. Joseph has forgiven them fully and completely. Joseph also wanted to help their father believe. He gave his father gifts, including food and the good things of Egypt, it says in verse 23. No doubt it included some princely garments as well. Imagine Benjamin's shock. At hearing the story for the first time, the true story. He no doubt has difficulty comprehending what his brothers have done. But there's one more very painful thing to do. Joseph's brothers must tell their father about the quarter of a century of lies and hypocrisy. It is hard enough explaining it to Benjamin. Now they had to confess everything to their father. Joseph was calling them to Egypt You can imagine the heavy thoughts these men had on their long journey home. How could they tell their father about all the lies and deception? How could they explain their treachery and the heartache they have caused him? How could he ever forgive them? But they have no choice. They have to tell him and tell him all. What a confession! Imagine their humility as they come before him, Can you imagine Judah now telling the whole story of his own sin against his brother and his father? There he is, kneeling down, confessing his sin and pleading for his father's forgiveness. Imagine their tears as they open the sordid past and cleanse their souls of their iniquity and beg for forgiveness. Jacob can't believe it. It took some convincing. His sons have lied to him all these years. How can he believe them now? But Joseph had sent enough provisions that there would be no doubt that it was all too true. Imagine Jacob's feelings when he hears the true story. First shock and disbelief, then anger, then pity, then joy when he sees the evidence. Imagine his thoughts as he realizes what guilt his sons have carried for a quarter of a century. I will go and see him before I die, he says. Chapter 46 tells us that God intervened with Jacob. He knows that Jacob needs more encouragement and assurance to up and move completely to Egypt. He gives him a vision. He tells him that though his sons have lied to him, though they have covered it all up, yet he is in it. He has used it. He was orchestrating it all so that he will be able to accomplish his will even through their treachery. He assures him that indeed his son Joseph is alive and that he should go down to Egypt. He also assures him that he will bring his family back to Canaan. He assures him that he is making good on his promise of making him a great nation. The Israelites can gain much by being in Egypt, for it is the most developed of all nations at the time. They are semi-barbaric. Being in Egypt will help them develop and mature as a nation. So Jacob goes to Egypt. He is used to obeying God. He puts his fears and apprehensions aside and agrees to go and be with his son. They travel down the same road that Joseph traveled so many years before. Imagine their reunion. Jacob's confidence is restored in Judah. He sends him before him to Joseph to lead the way. Joseph goes up in his chariot to meet his father. Verse 29 says that when he saw his father, he fell on his neck and wept a good while. Imagine these two men holding each other, tears of joy streaming down so fast that they can't say a thing. Was the reunion between Christ and his father much the same when Christ ascended from earth? Is our reunion with Jesus going to be anything like this? Joseph takes him to meet Pharaoh. He doesn't tell Pharaoh all the trouble his brothers have been to him. In his mind, it is forgiven and forgotten. He treats them as if nothing has ever gone wrong. Isn't that the way Jesus treats us when we repent? Won't that be the way he will treat us when we are taken before his father's throne? It will be as if nothing has ever gone wrong. What respect! What love! My friends, the story of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, as wonderful as it is, is only a faint reflection of what Jesus has done for us. It is a miniature example of the love that he poured out on the whole human race. It is also a faithful illustration of the kind of dynamics that will happen to the last generation of earth, both among themselves and in the world. Let us not forget that Jesus allows us to go through trials and pain so that he can bond us to himself. When all is forgiven and we are in the new earth, what a reunion that will be! Can you imagine it? Will you be there? My friend, perhaps you have wandered a long time from God. Perhaps you have a guilty conscience that consumes you and prevents you from having real living faith. Perhaps you want to make things right with God and your fellow man. Does the story of Joseph speak to you? Do you see yourself in Joseph's life or in the life of his brothers? Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. Can't you give him your heart right now? Can't you turn over a new page in your experience and live in God? My friend, Jesus is longing to fall upon your neck and weep in forgiveness. He longs to take you in His arms and forget the past. But you have to come to Him, just as you are. You can come near unto Him. What relief! What joy will be yours! What hope! That you too can have eternal life. Give Him your heart right now let us pray our loving Heavenly Father we thank you so much for the forgiveness that Jesus gives us the story of Joseph reminds us of his forgiving love help us to appreciate it fully in light of our own treason help us to forgive others who mistreat us like Joseph and as we near the end of time we will have many experiences like Joseph as we may be rejected or alienated from our close friends, family, or fellow believers. But let us live for you and avoid reactions that dishonor you. Help us to catch a vision of how you will use your faithful people in these last days. And thank you for restoring us to the fullness of your grace and power in our characters and in our lives. We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis.
1: May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month California lawmakers blame religious people for high suicide rates in the LGBT community. This is Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Richard Barnett. I'll be filling in for Hal Mayer while he's on medical leave. Lawmakers in California have passed a resolution that singles out the state's religious communities and forces them to fully support LGBT individuals. In an astonishing bid to have people of faith conform to the pervading progressive culture, the legislators even blamed religious individuals For many of the issues faced by those in the LGBT community today, including suicide, the Federalist reports. The resolution, which recently passed through the State Assembly, reads, The legislature calls upon all Californians to embrace the individual and social benefits of family and community acceptance of LGBT people. The document unapologetically pins blame on people of faith for being contributors to the skyrocketing suicide rates among the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender community. The stigma associated with being LGBT, often created by groups in society, including therapists and religious groups, has caused disproportionately high rates of suicide, attempted suicide, depression, rejection, and isolation amongst LGBT and questioning individuals, the bill reads. So, with this assertion put forward as fact, the California legislature is effectively seeking to force religious people to agree with and support the LGBT community even if they hold strong personal convictions that would draw them away from doing so. There is some good news, however, because the political action is merely a resolution, it is not legally binding. It does, however, signal a serious shift towards the policing of belief systems that are held by millions of Americans. They couldn't criminalize you, but they could obliterate your reputation and your life, commented Glenn Stanton at The Federalist, noting that the resolution will grease the skids for it becoming enforceable law. In addition, to be clear, there is no solid evidence to support the idea that affirming religious groups are a direct cause of suicide in the LGBT community. Quite simply, anyone making the claim that family responses and religious teaching cause suicide do so Absent of any bit of scientific proof, Stanton added, just as the men of Sodom surrounded the house of Lot, so the legal system is surrounding the people of faith today. But before Lot and his guests lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, come past the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Genesis 19.4 Next, Facebook funds brain experiments to create a mind-reading device. In 2017, Facebook announced that it wanted to create a headband that would let people type at a speed of 100 words per minute just by thinking. Now, a little over two years later, the social media giant is revealing that it has been financing extensive university research on human volunteers. Today, some of that research was described in a scientific paper from the University of California, San Francisco, where researchers have been developing speech decoders able to determine what people are trying to say by analyzing their brain signals. The research is important because it would help show whether a wearable brain control device is feasible and because it is an early example of a giant tech company being involved in getting hold of data directly from people's minds. To some neuroethicists, that means we are going to need some rules and fast about how brain data is collected, stored, and used. In the report published today in Nature Communications, UCSF researchers, led by neuroscientist Edward Chang, used sheets of electrodes called ECOG arrays that were placed directly on the brains of volunteers. The scientists were able to listen in in real time as three subjects heard questions read from a list and spoke simple answers. One question was from zero to ten, how much pain are you in? The system was able to detect both the question and the response of zero to ten far better than chance. Another question asked was which musical instrument they preferred, and the volunteers were able to answer piano and violin. The volunteers were undergoing brain surgery for epilepsy. Facebook says the research project is ongoing and that it is now funding UCSF in the efforts to try to restore the ability to communicate to a disabled person with a speech impairment. Eventually, Facebook wants to create a wearable headset that lets users control music or interact in virtual reality using their thoughts. To that end, Facebook has also been funding work on systems that listen in on brain from outside the skull using fiber optics or lasers to measure changes in blood flow similar to an MRI machine. Such blood flow patterns represent a small part of what's going on in the brain, but they could be enough to distinguish between a limited set of commands. Being able to recognize even a handful of imagined commands like home, select, and delete would provide entirely new ways of interacting with today's VR systems and tomorrow's AR glasses, Facebook wrote in a blog post. Facebook has plans to demonstrate a prototype portable system by the end of the year, although the company didn't say what it would be capable of or how it would measure the brain. The Bible prophesied that knowledge would increase in the last days, but that knowledge will be used to further nefarious and wicked purposes. Thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel twelve four. Next, IMF blog explains how negative interest rates work in a cashless society. Many central banks reduced policy interest rates to zero during the global financial crisis to boost growth. Ten years later, interest rates remained low in most countries. While the global economy has been recovering, future downturns are inevitable. Severe recessions have historically required three to six percentage points cut in policy rates. If another crisis happens, few countries would have that kind of room for monetary policy to respond. To get around this problem, a recent IMF staff study shows how central banks can set up a system that would make deeply negative interest rates a feasible option. How low can you go? In a cashless world, there would be no lower bound on the interest rates. A central bank could reduce the policy rate from, say, 2% minus 4% to counter a severe recession. The interest rate cut would transmit to bank deposits, loans, and bonds. Without cash, depositors would have to pay the negative interest rate to keep their money with the bank, making consumption and investment more attractive. This would jolt lending, boost demand, and stimulate the economy. When cash is available, however, cutting rates significantly into negative territory becomes impossible. Cash has the same purchasing power as bank deposits, but at zero nominal interest. Moreover, it can be obtained in unlimited quantities in exchange for bank money. Therefore, instead of paying negative interest, one can simply hold cash at zero interest. Cash is a free option on zero interest and acts as an interest rate floor. Because of this floor, central banks have resorted to unconventional monetary policy measures. The euro area, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, and other economies have allowed interest rates to go slightly below zero, which has been possible because taking out cash in large quantities is inconvenient and costly, for example, storage and insurance fees. These policies have helped boost demand, but they cannot fully make up for lost policy space when interest rates are very low. One option to break through the zero lower bound would be to phase out cash. But that is not straightforward. Cash continues to play a significant role in payments in many countries. To get around this problem, in a recent IMF staff study and previous research, we examine a proposal for central banks to make cash as costly as bank deposits with negative interest rates, thereby making deeply negative interest rates feasible while preserving the role of cash. The proposal is for a central bank to divide the monetary base into two separate local currencies, cash and electronic money or e-money. E-money would be issued only electronically and would pay the policy rate of interest and cash would have an exchange rate, the conversion rate, against e-money. This conversion rate is key to the proposal. When setting a negative interest rate on e-money, the central bank would let the conversion rate of cash in terms of e-money depreciate at the same rate as the negative interest rate on e-money the value of cash would thereby fall in terms of e-money. To illustrate, suppose your bank announced a negative 3% interest rate on your bank deposit of $100 today. Suppose also that the central bank announced that the cash dollars would now become a separate currency that would depreciate against e-dollars by 3% a year. The conversion rate of cash dollars into e-dollars would hence change from 1 to 0.97 over the year. After a year, there would be 97 E-Dollars left in your bank account. If you instead took out 100 cash dollars today and kept it safe at home for a year, exchanging it into E-Money after that year would also yield 97 E-Dollars. At the same time, shops would start advertising prices in E-Money and cash separately, just as shops in some small open economies already advertise prices both in domestic and in bordering foreign currencies. Cash would thereby be losing value both in terms of goods and in terms of e-money, and there would be no benefit to holding cash relative to bank deposits. This dual local currency system would allow the central bank to implement as negative an interest rate as necessary for countering a recession without triggering any large-scale substitutions into cash. While a dual currency system challenges our preconceptions about money, Countries could implement the idea with relatively small changes to central bank operating frameworks. In comparison to alternative proposals, it would have the advantage of completely freeing monetary policy from the zero lower bound. Its introduction would reconfirm the central bank's commitment to the inflation target rather than raise doubts about it. Still, implementing such a system is not without challenges. It would require important modifications of the financial and legal system. In particular, fundamental questions pertaining to monetary law would have to be addressed and consistency with the IMF's legal framework would need to be ensured. Also, it would require an enormous communication effort. The pros and cons of the system are country-specific and should be carefully compared to other proposals such as higher inflation targets or increasing monetary policy space in a low-interest environment. We consider these issues and more in our research. A cashless society is a precursor to restrictions on those who run afoul of global religious laws, and that no man might buy ourselves save he that have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name revelation thirteen seventeen Next scientists claims to have grown the world's first ever human monkey hybrid embryo. A Spanish scientist has grown the world's first ever human monkey hybrid in a lab in China which was viable and could have been born, but the process was aborted. Researchers formed a hybrid embryo by genetically modifying monkey embryos to deactivate genes that are essential for the formation of organs. They then injected the embryo with human stem cells, which are capable of creating any type of tissue into the embryo. Although the breakthrough experiment is an important step towards using animals for human organ transplants, it had to take place in China to avoid legal issues. The team have not yet published their findings, but reported the creation of the hybrid to El Pei. The embryo was destroyed at 14 days of gestation, a point dubbed the Red Line, meaning that the embryo could not develop a central nervous system. Juan Carlos Isbazua Belmonte was also responsible for creating the first human-pig hybrid in 2017. The scientists said his team conducted the first experiment of human and pig chimeras in the world, although to less success. A genetic chimera, or chimerism, is a single organism composed of cells from different individuals. The human cells did not take hold. We saw that they contributed very little to the development of the embryo. One human cell for every 100,000 pig cells, said Professor Ispasua's colleague, University of California veterinarian Pablo Ross. The team then were able to create chimeras between more similar species, for instance the rat and the mouse, which is five times closer than humans and pigs. Project collaborator Estrella Nunez held the experiment as very promising. We are now trying not only to move forward and continue experimenting with human cells and rodent and pig cells, but also with non-human primates, said Professor Ispasua. Our country is a pioneer and a world leader in these investigations, he added. A team are now looking to continue experimenting with human, rodent and pig cells, as well as with non-human primates. The scientists have also experimented with creating human birds with rats and mice with the hope of developing transplantable hearts, eyes, and pancreases. Ángel Raya, director of Barcelona Regenerative Medicine Center, said the hybrid experiments do have ethical barriers. What happens if the stem cells escape and form human neurons in the brain of the animal, he asked. Would it have consciousness? And what happens if these stem cells turn into sperm cells? Núñez has said, however, that if any of the stem cells begin to form a human brain, they will self-destruct. If there was one sin above another which called for destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 69. Next, oil executives visit the Vatican. Earlier this month, more than 30 oil and gas CEOs and investors captured headlines by meeting with Pope Francis in the Vatican on climate change, then releasing a statement supporting carbon pricing. What is clear from this high-profile event is that the climate crisis has become a societal imperative, an investor priority, and a top-tier business risk for the oil and gas industry. What's not clear is whether these leading oil companies will help bring about the low-carbon future they envisioned, With Pope Francis by consistently advocating for essential public policies, including those that price and limit carbon emissions. Spiritual capitals like the Vatican can inspire vision and stoke resolve, but ultimately it is in the political capitals around the world where government leaders will make the decisions that determine whether the the climate crisis is solved. The real test is whether companies' actions will match the rhetoric or lapse back into business as usual, exacerbating concerns of the financial community and deepening license-to-operate issues for oil and gas companies. During the meeting, participants agreed on the urgent need for a systematic transition to a low-carbon emissions future aimed at keeping global warming below 2 degrees centigrade. Reportedly, the oil and gas executives in the room also recognize that addressing the climate crisis requires radical changes at all levels, both personal and collective. If genuinely meant, this language is a welcome breath of fresh air from an industry known for its resistance to this level of change. The subsequent statement from oil companies and other participants includes an endorsement of carbon pricing regimes, Whether tax, trade, or other market-based measures and an acceptance that energy sector advocacy and engagement are essential to achieve government policy changes. This is an important statement because pricing carbon is the key way to create incentives, establish regulatory certainty, and help industry allocate capital for the lower carbon future that investors demand. One leading indicator of the seriousness of executive commitments will be how companies engage in the political debate on carbon pricing in the U.S., the world's most energy-intensive nation and one of its largest emitters. Today, business support for climate action is reigniting in Washington, D.C. While the oil companies that signed the Vatican Statement are a fraction of the global industry, their leadership matters. Here's what it will take for the oil companies that signed the Vatican Statement to make their commitment meaningful in practice. CEO-level attention and resources commensurate with a global problem that demands, in their own words, urgent action. Active and public support for science-based federal climate policy that includes carbon pricing. Transparency on how they, among the largest dues-paying members of the American Petroleum Institute, are using their clout to reverse API's long-standing opposition to pricing carbon. Political giving that rewards pro-climate lawmakers and candidates, not those who oppose and obstruct government action on climate change. Earnest efforts to bring along a wider swath of industry actors. The history of oil and gas engagement on carbon and other climate policies too often have been defined by obstruction, opposition, and hiding behind the lowest common denominator. But with the urging and support of motivated investors, leaders in industry can chart a different future. As the participants in the Vatican discussion agreed, radical change is needed, building on the positive steps taken by several companies in the industry. How companies lobby, engage with trade associations and peers, and politically spend will answer whether reality lives up to rhetoric. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies, and the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her. Revelations eighteen three and 9. Next, is religious freedom under threat in Australia? The conference titled Religious Freedom at Crossroads the rise of anti-Christian sentiment in the West was the first event of its kind in Australia. There is a need to protect religious freedom in this country. I think religious freedom is under threat, Professor Augusto Zimmerman, head of law at Sheridan College and the conference organizer, told audience members at Sheridan College in Perth on June 14-15. through 15, Zimmerman is also president of the Western Australian Legal Theory Association and editor-in-chief of the Western Australian Jurist Law Journal. Attendees heard from speakers who raised concerns about the intolerance of Christians that seemed to be growing in Western societies like Australia. Speakers also addressed the need to uphold the principles of religious freedom and freedom of speech. Conference patron, former Prime Minister John Howard, told audience members via video link, this is a time for all... Australians who believe in the fundamental right of religious freedom to speak out in favor of steps being taken from both sides of politics to ensure that freedoms we've always taken for granted are preserved. Being practical, the most significant threat to religious freedom is the possibility that state governments will remove some of the exemptions under anti-discrimination laws which allow religious schools to teach the fundamental doctrines of their faith, Howard added. The right to free speech and freedom of association are essential elements of a democratic society, but both rights have been undermined in Australia, Zimmerman continued. People don't feel comfortable anymore to express their opinions because they are afraid of suffering from some sort of persecution as a result. Zimmerman criticized Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act 1975 as a law that violates the Constitution of Australia because it can be used by bigots as an instrument of persecution. Section 18C was added to the Act in 1995 and has been the subject of much debate and controversy ever since. There are many laws in this country that prevent people from expressing their ideas and being more fully engaged in the political discussion. Zimmerman said, We have something in the Constitution called implied freedom of political communication that has been acknowledged by the high court. It has been disrespected by politicians and many laws in this country. Zimmerman also told the Epoch Times some Christians are now being censored and some are probably losing their jobs because they express an opinion. The conference speakers include some of the finest legal minds in Australia from various human rights organizations, law firms, and lobby groups. The problem of religious oppression and persecution is on the rise, keynote speaker Professor William Wagner told the Epoch Times. It's all around the world, not just in Australia. Wagner is a leading American constitutional lawyer and a distinguished professor emeritus at Thomas Cooley Law School, Western Michigan University. Wagner said that politically motivated judges have become a big problem for free expression and religious conscience in Western nations because they interpret constitutional and statutory provisions according to their political agenda. Even more problematic is the unelected judiciary who is not being held politically accountable by anybody. I believe we are at a crossroad, Wagner said. Examples of oppression and persecution of Christians in Australia were discussed, including rugby star Israel Folau, whose contract was terminated by Rugby Australia in May after the committed Christian posted a Bible passage with a meme on social media. The conference was fully booked and most of the attendees were Christians. Warwick de Silva, a member of the National Silva Council in Perth, said he was happy to attend a conference. I feel political correctness has come a lot into the workplace and educational institutions. You always have to be on guard on what you say, especially in regards to religion, he told the Epoch Times. I hope there are many more to come so that we can further educate each other on how to articulate arguments to defend our freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Satan is still working through every means which he can control and destroy religious liberty. Great Controversy, page 204. Unfortunately, our time is up.
0: Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.